When I took over my first parish as a vicar in Harrow, northwest London, um, it's a great church, by the way, some of them are here today. I, um, I, when I arrived in the building, there was this smell I could only describe as Anglican damp. Now, it, <laughs> it doesn't matter where you go in the world, Anglican churches all have this same signature smell. And you go in, and it's a sort of strange sweet and sour kind of smell. And um, you go in, I went into a church in New Zealand, actually, which had this incredible smell. I couldn't believe I'd gone all the way around the world, and Anglican damp was still a fragrance there. And, um, you know, when I arrived in the church, I, 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 could, I just walked in the door, I thought, oh, goodness, Anglican damp in a big way. And, and the church at that time wasn't particularly welcoming. There was, it, was, it was kind of there was quite a lot of junk around, and there was, there was, sort of, there was uh, dusty flower arrangements everywhere, not real flowers, you know, silk flowers. And, and every windowsill was kind of caked in dust, and the toilets smelt really awful. And uh, when I arrived, I, I took some of the leaders away on a sort of leaders retreat to kind of find out what God might be saying. And so we went to, to do this blue sky thinking, and I sent everyone off in groups to have a think about what God might be saying. And, and apparently God was saying that you needed new toilets. Every, every single group came back to me with their list, and at the top was new toilets. And I thought that new toilets was going to be the answer to Anglican Damp. I thought, I bet when we do these new toilets, this place is going to smell fantastic. And that's really important when you're trying to welcome new people into your church. So I spent a lot of money, like several thousand pounds, getting the toilets refurbed. New toilets, fantastic toilets, new flooring, everything looked great. But after about seven or eight months of being imposed, I remember sitting down in my office and just taking a big waft of Anglican damp. And I thought, goodness, I've spent like 16,000 pounds getting these toilets built, and I can't believe I can still smell this terrible Anglican damp smell. It's really depressing, and it? You know, about a month after, I was walking around the building. It's a really, really big building. And, and at the back of it, there's actually a medical practice. I remember walking around the back, and I saw this small blue door. It wasn't Alice in Wonderland. It was just a small blue door. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to go in that door today. And so I went to see the maintenance man, and he, you know, he typically started sucking his teeth, going, oh, no, you don't want to go in there. I think he was just afraid that he couldn't find the key. And after some time, he did actually appear with the key, and me, armed with a stick and a camera phone, uh, went in like Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom. I was sort of ready to waft away all of the cobwebs that were there and sort of fight my way uh, into this new part of the building that I haven't been in before. And he was sort of standing behind me, and I, I went forward bravely, and I like wafted away some of the cobwebs, and I stepped down just, just two steps, and then I realised what the problem was. Lapping at the third step was this brassy, stinking water. And I shouted back to him, you know, how deep is this thing? He says, oh, I think it's supposed to be pretty deep. And I said, well, it's looking pretty deep to me. Pretty deep. There was a basement under here, two rooms. There were 17 steps that went down under the church. There were two massive basement rooms that I could stand up in. And the whole place was completely flooded. We uh, called up the local fire brigade. I said, oh, hello, I'm the new local vicar. <laughs> they said, oh, I said, oh, it's terrible news. My, my church is flooded. I didn't tell them it was flooded in 1902. I just said, <laughs> church, is, ch church is flooded. Please, could you help me? And of course, they came round with the fire brigade, and big fire engine, stuck the hose down into this basement, started pumping the place out. Five hours later, and three and a half thousand gallons of putrid, brassy water, and finally we'd emptied the whole building. 
And it was like going down into the Titanic. In there was the scout equipment from the turn of the century. Everything was kind of rotten and rusted, but exactly as it had been left. And um, we, we, we got some skips in, we emptied the whole place out, you know, we, we got this pump to make sure that no more water came in, we put some electrics in, we heated it, we lit it, and about, you know, about uh, three months after that, a young man came to me in the church and he said, oh, he said, oh, Will, have you got anywhere I can, like, bring my weights? Because I've just got married and my wife's fed up with, like, me having weights in our, like, living room. And I said, you know what, I, I know just the place. So I set this guy up with his heavy weights gym under the church and him and a load of other people were getting up at six in the morning pumping iron listening to worship music. And I thought, you know, well, that's the journey that we need in relationship to shame. Because, you know, so many of our basements are flooded with shame. The door is locked, it's just all putrid. The smell wafts through the floorboards of our lives and makes us feel like something is wrong. But we need to drain that shame basement and replace it with an integrity gym where someone's getting strong early in the mornings. The work of shame is is acknowledging something that's so hard to acknowledge. The fact is that I was tempted to build higher. In fact, in my building, the worship hall was actually on the first floor, as if someone had had the same idea. We've got to get away from this horrible smell. In leadership, so many of us build on the first floor and above because the ground floor is a bit too close to danger, but we keep well away from that shame basement. Everything about ourselves that we don't like, that we think excludes us, that we think will lead to other people humiliating us and rejecting us has been buried in the basement, the door has been locked, and all we can smell is this vague semblance of shame. The thing about shame is it's, it's so hard to define. You know, what I find is that uh, I, I, can, I can describe other emotions. I can describe me being happy. I can describe me being angry. I can describe me being guilty. But I struggle to describe shame. What do I say? Is it doing word? Is it a verb? Is it I shame, you shame, we shame? Do we conjugate shame? How, how do you describe shame in your experience? You don't say to someone, oh, I'm really shamey today. Like, but you might say, I'm really happy. You say, oh, I feel really guilty, but don't say, really, I feel really shame. I feel ashamed is about as close as we can go. But what if shame was far more significant than we had given it credit for? This is a, a picture of John Ruttle. He's one of the greatest conductors uh, in England at the moment and this is him conducting the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. I love this picture, it reminds me of Edvard Munch's The Scream, um, if you know that painting. And um, what it demonstrates is the visceral power uh, of the conductor over the orchestra. And I would suggest to you that, um, that shame is like the conductor of our emotional orchestra. Imagine an orchestra strung out in front of you. They've got four parts, the percussion, the woodwind, the strings, and the brass. Four elements of the orchestra. Which instrument do you think would be most powerful? Do you think it's the trombone, or or maybe it's the timpani drums, or maybe it's the cymbals, or or maybe it's the double bass? If you imagine those... uh, those sections of the orchestra, they're, they're similar to the University of Glasgow's convincing argument that there are four basic emotions, uh, happy, fear, surprise, anger, disgust, and sadness. It does sound like six, but they tell me it's only four. 
But imagine that they are those four different elements, that, that actually the, the happy are the strings and the fear surprise are the woodwind and the anger disgust the brass and the sadness is the percussion. Which instrument's the most powerful? Well, I want to tell you that the most powerful instrument in the orchestra of your emotions is the instrument of shame. The most powerful instrument in the orchestra makes no noise. You see, the baton that the conductor holds is the most powerful in this orchestra. It can determine when and how any instrument is played. The power in the orchestra is held by the conductor. And in fact, shame is not an emotion, it's an affect. Psychologist Sylvan Tompkins' primacy of effect suggests that, that, that shame conducts and directs the other emotions in our emotional orchestra. That it can turn a happy moment into a slightly sour one, a, a guilty moment in a moment of self-loathing and hatred, a joyful moment in a moment of sorrow. Shame has a huge impact on how we experience our own emotional world, and yet it's one thing that we fail to address in our leadership. It's the one thing we fail to acknowledge, where the real power is. And me and Rob have spent a long time writing about perfectionism and, and about worry and about guilt, and that's all good, but actually we needed to write the book about shame, because it's all well and good talking about the things that are an outworking of the problem, but what about talking about the problem itself? In my um, family, have a house down in South Devon, and there's a, a pier there, and I always take my children there. My parents took me there as a kid. And there's a game there we love to play. It's called Whack-A-Mole. Have you ever played Whack-A-Mole? Mole's heads come out. It's very brutal, and you have to hit the head of the mole that pops out the hole. Now, you never win Whack-A-Mole, because the moles just pop out more quickly, and you get more and more exhausted, and you end up in a fit of giggles on the floor. Dealing with all these other things is like playing whack-a-mole. You can hit the whack-a-mole of, of guilt, or you can hit the whack-a-mole of worry, or you can hit the whack-a-mole of perfectionism, you can hit the whack-a-mole of stress, but what about the mechanism? What makes the moles keep popping out of a hole? Like shame is this powerful emotion that can change and impact and influence all of our emotions, but it's a leader emotion I'm specifically interested in today. You see, the fact is that as leaders, we are impacted by shame in such a way that it impacts and transforms our own leadership. The way in which I describe it is the feeling of fraudulence. If you're here and you want to lead well, you've got to identify how you relate to this feeling of being a fraud. Some leaders call it imposter syndrome. But I just say it makes you feel like a fraud. Shame makes you feel like you should be doing anything else but the thing that you're doing. And the weird thing about shame is that shame makes you feel more fraudulent the more successful you are. You know, in the world today, they suggest that you know, if you could just be more successful, then you would find more security. You know, if you just could be a bit more successful in work, then you'll be secure. The weird thing about that is that the more successful you are, rather than the more secure you are, the more insecure you are. I, I work with tons of leaders, I coach leaders at quite a senior level. And, and I can't tell you how many leaders I meet who tell me things like, well, I've kind of lucked in, I, I, I can't really believe that I ever got here, and if anyone found out what I would really like, they'd never follow me. The leaders are leading with increasing anxiety relating to their sense of fraudulence. I wonder in your area of work, in mental health, whether you feel like a fraud whether you're always deferring to other people, saying, oh, well, you know, they're kind of better qualified than me. 
You know, one of the dangers of today is that you watch us all at the front and you, you know, listen to great speakers like, like Cade or Chi-Chi or Rob or Rachel or Helen and you think, oh, these guys, they're, they're the ones who are really doing it. You know, these, are the, these are the good guys. These are the people who are qualified. I'm just a fraud. I'm just in here. I'm not really even sure why I'm here. It, shame is having a field day in Christian leadership and it's having a field day in our lives. And I wonder how we can undo and how we can change our experience. The key thing about these feelings of fraudulence is how intractical they can become, leading to the formulation of these I am statements. You see, Christian songs often sing things like, you know, I, my guilt and shame is all done. I'm done with guilt and shame. Guilt and shame are like this happy pairing, trolling down the street, you know, oh, guilt and shame this, guilt and shame that. But guilt and shame are really, really different. They're just not the same. You know, shame is far earlier as an emotion than guilt. Guilt and shame haven't got massive amounts to do with one another. Guilt, you know, is a negative feelings about the things that I've done. But shame are negative things about who I am. Now, these are identity questions that are plaguing leaders. They say things like, I'm defective, I'm damaged, I'm broken, I'm a mistake, I'm flawed, I'm dirty, I'm soiled, I'm ugly, I'm unclean, I'm impure, I'm filthy, I'm disgusting, I'm incomplete, I'm incompetent, I'm not good enough, I'm inept, I'm ineffectual, I'm useless, I'm unwanted, unloved, unappreciated, uncherished, I'm weak, I'm small, I'm impotent, I'm puny, I'm feeble, I'm bad, I'm awful, I'm dreadful, I'm evil, I'm despicable, I'm pitiful, contemptible, miserable, insignificant, I'm nothing, I'm worthless, I'm invisible, I'm unnoticed. I'm empty. That's shame. You know, I, I received an invitation about uh, seven years ago now to go to Windsor Castle to uh, a leader's retreat. And when I received the email, I remember opening it and there was a moment of rare pride. I sort of opened the email, I was like, oh, that's nice. And um, it lasted about three seconds. And after that, I thought, oh, goodness, it's not really for people like me. And then I went to see uh, my wife. I said, oh, they've, I've been invited to this thing at Windsor Castle. And she said, oh, um, oh that's good. They finally realised you've got something useful to say. That, that's about it with, with my wife. She's a very practical lady. And, um, and that made me feel better for a couple of minutes. But then I just thought, you know what? Oh, like, oh, you know, maybe I was on the B list. Maybe someone couldn't make it. Maybe I was on the D list and lots of people couldn't make it. I didn't feel comfortable about it. I felt like it wasn't for me. And um, I decided I'd go early. So I went two hours early before the sort of suggested start time because I thought if I just checked on the gate that I was actually on the list, it wouldn't be so humiliating if it was a mistake. So I arrived at Windsor Castle early, sort of, you know, tentatively stepping up to the guards on the door. Hello, I think I'm here for a sort of retreat thing. Yes? Um... Can I give you my name? Yes. This is my name. Yes, you're on the list. Oh, that's it. There's no mistakes. Wasn't meant to be someone else. Anyway, guards don't really offer you very much, do they? So <laughs> I walked into Windsor Castle, and I was all still tripping around, waiting for someone to catch up with me and escort me back off the premises. All, all day, I was sort of thinking, oh, I don't really feel that comfortable here. You know, not really for people like me. And then we were in the first evening event and Pete Gregg, who's a great guy of prayer, was at the front. He's a retreat leader. I was right at the back and I was looking around at a group of about 30 leaders who I really admired and respected, thinking, what am I doing here? I need to be out of eye line. And then he said this. He said, um, hey everyone, just so you know, there's probably not a person in the room who doesn't feel like a bit of a fraud. 
So could we just get over ourselves and start worshipping Jesus? <laughs> I, 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 thought, I thought I felt like a fraud. Now I'm worrying that I might be hallucinating. It's another aspect of anxiety that just began to grow in me. But I, I looked around the room and I noticed all these other leaders that I admired and respected all nodding. And I thought, wow, this isn't just my experience. This is the experience of loads and loads and loads of leaders, leaders of leaders. They're struggling with this sense that they kind of don't belong here. And I started thinking about the kind of the Christian call and thinking actually who does? Who, who is righteous? Only one. Who is perfect? Well, only one. Is it inevitable that we struggle with this? Well, maybe, because actually we, we serve a perfect and a glorious God, but does God call us to live in this place of shame? No, I don't believe he does. He wants to free us for something greater. Behind our experience of fraud is this uh, idea that we belong, and belonging in this theory is really a core tenant to this from a psychological perspective. In Baumeister and Lyra's 1995 study, The Need to Belong, they propose the simplest principle, that a need to belong is a fundamental human motivation, that human beings have a pervasive drive to form and maintain a minimum quality of lasting, positive, and significant interpersonal relationships. Basically, you are created for connection. God's created you for relationship. That actually within every one of us is a belongingness value. I was in education before I became a priest, and I did a lot of work on attachment theory and John Bowler and Piaget and the like. And, and you know, I love attachment theory. It's brilliant. But it, we always felt like I was starting from position B rather than position A. And until I got hold of belongingness theory, I thought, well, I'd, why do we attach? be much easier if we just kept ourselves to ourselves. But we attach because we have a hunger, a desire, an innate nature which requires belonging. We are made to belong in relationship. And it's this strong desire to belong that inversely charges our fear of unbelonging. So imagine every one of you keeps this value at your heart, the desire to belong. Now because the way you're wired, to defend that value, you are identifying every setting or every relationship within which you believe you do not belong. When we, when, we, when we hunger for something, we are always busy identifying the threats to the things that we hunger for. If we hunger for belonging, we are terrified of rejection. And so our experience in leadership very often is this idea that actually I long to belong in leadership. I long to belong in my place of influence, and yet I'm terrified that I might not really belong. And so I begin to identify places within which I don't belong and people with whom I don't belong. And before I know it, rather than feeling like I belong, I believe I don't belong. The enemy to our belonging is shame. Shame says that you don't belong, that you're not good enough here. And in leadership, in Christian leadership, in leadership in mental health, many of us will think, I long to belong, but I just, I don't know, I really do. I don't know, I have a will. I feel like I'm just a fraud, like I'm faking it to make it. See a lot of teenagers now around the, around the church, they're talking about that. I'm all going to fake it to make it. Fake it to make it. I'm like, no, no one ever fakes it to make it. If you fake it and then you make it, you just feel rubbish. Like, faking it to make it is just the disaster of our lifetime. We're all faking it to make it. And we think somehow that there will be a point at which everyone will go, oh, yeah, oh, you've done enough now. Oh, you're not a fake anymore. No. No one does that. Everyone thinks you were right in it from the beginning. So now you're just like a fake who made it, but you've got to be quiet about being a fake who made it. 
being a fake to make it doesn't make you make it. It just makes you carry lots of bigger responsibilities and feel even worse about them. God's not called us into the kingdom to fake it, but to be authentic, to be real. He's called us to actually be flesh and blood. In John chapter 1, it says, it says that the word became flesh and moved into our neighborhood. That's real. That's visceral. That's raw. That's what I want a part of. But in leadership, so often we're hiding behind. I was thinking about Moses' experience and uh, you know, a therapy session with Moses would have been interesting. Imagine he's about sort of 15. This is Moses. Um, he's, he, you know, his mum put him in a basket and then pushed him out on the, uh, on the river. And um, you can imagine, you know, hello, Moses. Oh, yes, do come in. Yes, it's tissues. Just, tissues are just there. Ha- have a sit down. How are you? Yes. Oh, yes, yes, that's right. Yes, building on last week's narrative. Yes, that's right. Yes, your mother, yes, she did put you in a basket. And yes, that's, yes, she did float you out onto a river filled with crocodiles. That must, have been, that must have been very difficult for you, Moses. Yes, yes, remarkable. I'm sure she had good intentions. No, that's right. Yes, you were, you were picked up by an Egyptian princess. They, they, they were killing all of your brothers and sisters. That's right. But I'm sure she wasn't like her father, Pharaoh. Your mother, yes, your, your mother did. She, yes, she did. She came along and she's, she said she would be your nursemaid. No, you're right. That would have been very confusing. <laughs> but she just wanted to be close to you, Moses. Yes, yeah, you're right. She did deny that she was your mother. Um, Moses, I think maybe we should have a break. Should we come back again next week at the same time? For, for many of us, for many of us, our story is around, you know, it's poor attachment. It's John Bowler's idea that actually we're not, we're not secure, that we, we haven't found secure roots, and, and actually poor attachment leads us to wonder whether we actually have got a place in the world. Now, this talk isn't going to divest into attachment theory and poor attachment, but, but in Moses' story, this idea of who I am and whose I am pays a huge part in how he subsequently goes on to experience life. Sigmund Freud said that emotions never die. They're buried alive and they come forth in later in uglier ways. That for many of us in Christian leadership, those early emotions that have, have left us feeling out in the cold continue to plague us continue to make us feel actually that we don't belong. And the Christian message becomes something that it's privately worked out. It's like us and God. Oh God, I'm glad you know me and all my secret thoughts. You're the only one. I can't wait to get to heaven because then I can like be myself. And actually God's saying, you know, I want you to know me. I want you to know you belong to me in order that you can be flesh and blood, authentic, real, show up. Not that we can kind of hide our way through this life, not that we can fake it to make it to heaven, and then suddenly go, surprise, this is what I'm really like, everyone. You know, he wants us to be flesh and blood in the neighborhood right now, to lead right now, to know you belong right now. Moses left that experience, a hard experience of confused foundations, and The rage within him led him to kill an Egyptian slave driver. 
And then he places himself into exile. He exiles himself because he believes he does not belong. Shame, shame overwhelms him. And, you know, he, he's firstly a Hebrew, then he's an Egyptian, but then he runs to Midian to become someone else. You know, he spends 40 years in the desert of Midian shepherding sheep. And 40 years later, he finds himself in front of a burning bush, and, and God is calling him back to that place of belonging. Rather than address his inner world, Moses has run away. He's just hiding. He's living, but he's hiding. God had a true mission for him, orientated around his true belonging-based identity, which was a Hebrew leader. And yet here he is, a shepherd of Midian. He never even calls himself a Midianite. He never even identifies with Midian. He takes a, a Midian bride, he looks after a Midian sheep, but nowhere in Exodus does it ever say that Mi Moses ever considered himself anything other than a Hebrew. It's funny, he defends himself so badly. God appears to him and God instructs him to go back to that place of his humiliation to restore the people of Israel to set them free from slavery and take them away from exile into the promised land. God has called you all in your areas of influence to help people struggling with mental health problems out of exile and into the promised land of relationship. That doesn't mean that God has called you to heal everyone of their mental health condition, but he's called you to bring alongside those people into the community of healing wherever they find it. He's called you to be people of the exodus, to lead people away from isolation and subjugation into freedom and community. It says in the text in Exodus 4-2, then the Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? Moses is trying to rebel against God's instruction to go back and, and God says, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied, and the Lord said to him, throw it on the ground. So Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. In the Bear Grylls Survival School, you know, he shows you that there are two ways of managing snakes. The first way is just to run away. My favorite way is just to run away. But the other way you can, you know, can, can manage a snake if you need to pick one up is to control it by the head. It's another sort of bare grill skill. You sort of grab it behind the head and you push your thumb just behind the nape of its neck and then you can control its face. And that's where all the danger is. It's in the face. Now, Moses has been a shepherd of Midian for 40 years. There were lions in the desert. There were probably bears or something like that in the desert as well. But the daily experience of a shepherd of Midian would have been snakes. Snakes that bite the feet of the sheep and goats, that they die in the desert. He had to defend the sheep against the snakes. That was the 101 school. And I reckon that Moses would have had their grills of a day of snake handling. He knew exactly how to do it, right? But you go on in the text and it says, Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Take it by the tail? Oh my goodness, are you serious? Here's Moses, shepherd of Midian, in the desert, filled with snakes. No anti-venom. No like Exville helicopter with camera crew. Just Moses in the desert, surrounded by venomous snakes. He's going to bend down after 40 years of shepherding and snake handling experience and pick up a snake by the tail? Now, this is the most counterintuitive thing that Moses is ever going to be asked to do in his entire ministry, including uh, speaking to a rock. 
So Moses reaches out a hand and took hold of the snake and it turned back to a staff in his hand. You know, there are two ways of managing shame. The first way is just to run away from it. Just to run away. Because actually, I don't want to address those issues that make me feel like I don't belong. I I don't want to address the fact that I don't match up to scratch. The other way is just to control it. Just to control it by the head. You know, to finesse my public persona. I look just that little bit too good to be true. Two ways in which we commonly manage our shame. We want to run from it or we want to control it. But God's saying today, I want you to pick it up by the tail. I want you to be vulnerable to it. Because here's the thing with shame. We're so busy running from it. We're so busy controlling it. We never actually learn how to manage it. We never learn how to face it down, how to be authentic with it. And so our leadership, like the shame basement, is so often locked down and spruced up. We're busy renovating the toilets. We're putting air fresheners everywhere, but under the ground, there's a flood in the foundations of our building. God doesn't want to leave us there. But the call to overcome shame is a call to be vulnerable in the face of shame. Brené Brown says that shame, blame, disrespect and the withholding of affection damage the roots from which love can grow. If you want to be effective in leadership, you need to have your roots in love. You need to know that you're connected. I keep meeting leaders who are just isolated in their profession. They've professionalized themselves, they've commoditized themselves, and they only believe that they're of any value because they do good work. They don't believe that they've got any value intrinsic to themselves. They don't believe that they're worthy just to stand up and do what they're doing. They want to overqualify themselves. They're running learning rackets where they're doing the OU night school every single night of the week in order they can get more accreditation that can validate them. For what? Something that they're already doing brilliantly. The thing is, we want to qualify ourselves away from the shame that we feel, but no qualification makes us feel better if we're bound by shame. Picking up the snake by the tail establishes the roots of love in order that we might live freely. Actually, living freely means I don't need to pretend anymore. I don't need to control the narrative anymore. I don't need to make myself better than I really am anymore. I can just show up. I can just be me. Secondarily, we can love fully. So many of our life choices are motivated by shame. Have you found yourself at a dinner party recently or a kind of gathering of friends? How many times have people said, what do you do? I don't really care. And I don't care what you do either. That's what you're thinking. (laughs) But what you say is, oh, I work in mental health. I'm very trained in, you know, it's very interesting. Let me tell you all about it. And they do the same to you. Desperate, just have a real connection. When you've dealt with shame, you can say, hey, let's not talk about work. Tell me what, what was the great last film you watched? What book are you reading at the moment? What makes you tick? We can be real, we can begin to love, and then we can lead authentically. Moses needed to resolve his shame, his shame of running from Egypt, his shame of of his poor attachment as a Hebrew, his his shame of his guilt, his shame about the acts of guilt uh, through killing the Egyptian slave driver, his shame of being weak. He needs to address that in order that he could lead. You see, Moses spent 40 years leading the sheep of Midian when he should have spent 40 years leading the lost sheep of Israel. Now God's got a mission for you. He's called you to mission, but you can't activate that mission if you haven't dealt with the shame that holds you from that mission. 
You see, shame drives mistrust into the foundational promises of God. In Eden, you see the shame snake at work again. The snake says to Adam and Eve, you know, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Yet we're always asking, will they really believe us if we, you know, if we start leading them? Will they really follow us? Will they, will they really agree with us? Will they not reject us? Will they not undermine us? I've got to do better. I've got to control the narrative. In Eden, Adam and Eve were naked, yet they were not ashamed. Now, we're not called to nakedness today, but we're called to vulnerability, which is a sort of nakedness. How many of us can be vulnerable without feeling ashamed? I don't want to share my story because they're going to hate me for it. They'll think I'm weak or they'll think I'm useless. Adam and Eve were boundaried. You know, they couldn't eat of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good or evil. They had boundaries in their lives. And those boundaries didn't make them feel ashamed. But boundaries often make us feel ashamed. Ooh, I'm not, in, I'm not included in that or I'm not allowed that. Uniqueness also makes us feel ashamed. But Adam and Eve were unique in the garden until the snake arrived. They were unique humans, and they didn't feel ashamed. Now, we just have everyone posting pictures of themselves like Justin Bieber on their Facebook accounts. They look like someone else. You see, likeness wasn't something to be attained in Genesis until the snake made likeness something that was appealing. You only choose likeness when you don't like yourself. I want to be like someone else because I don't really like who I am. You know, shame's infecting the roots of our leadership and it's infecting the roots of our culture. We need to, you know, redress the balance to come back and say, actually, nakedness, vulnerability, uniqueness, who I actually am, boundaries, you know, where I end and someone else begins. Those are three valuable principles that I want to hold on to. They're what make life work. They're the difference between shame and shamelessness. You see, the opposite of shame isn't shamelessness. In Scripture, that's kind of a position of being completely lost the opposite of shame in scripture is humility it's those things it's the humility to know I'm not the answer to everything it's the humility to know I can be weak and other people can help me it's the humility to know actually I don't need to be the king of the hill it's the humility to know I can actually be in communion and help other people and other people can help me humility is what restores us from our shame it's about really showing up It seems to me that lots of people are trying to build big, high, shiny, bright things. And God's saying, uh, 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 I just want you guys to collaborate, to do relationship, build the church, heal the sick, support people who are struggling with mental health problems. That's partly why I said earlier, you know, with Mind and Soul Foundation, we don't want to be like the next big, shiny organization. We've, we're hardly ever going to be that. But, you know, what we want to do is do stuff with you guys to do the thing together and not be ashamed. These are the three desires to accept my limitations as a leader, to know that, Rob says, I, there's always someone I can call. Secondary, to welcome my uniqueness. Everyone in this room is bringing something unique. And thirdly, that I can lead out of my vulnerability. I don't have to be the perfect package. And all of that's reliant on God's unconditional grace. I was in Bank of England this week, and... Um, I was, I was delivering a talk about perfectionism. You know, what part of me, honestly, I was going, you better get it right, guys, with Brexit and everything. <laughs> Please don't get it wrong. <laughs> but being, I was thinking, I was saying to me, you, know, you need to know that you've got limitations. No one wants to accept that. No one wants to say to their team, guys, you know what, I'm not very good at this bit, but you, someone else is really good at this, so they can do it. No one wants to do that. 
We're busy Googling, how can I do this? So then we can pretend that we're the expert. God's called us to collaboration. Paul says that we're a body, that actually every part has a different function and every part is important. Shame says, you've got to do it on your own, kid. You've got to get the glory. You've got to kind of mask the basement. You've got to put up the air fresheners of success. And then maybe everyone will think you're in. You will have made it. God's calling us to a different way. Within us is something called the sociometer. And the sociometer is so powerful because our sociometer distorts shame and it falsely presents our unacceptability and impending rejection. It would be great if it was really easy to just belong, just to know I belong here. But actually, I'm busy estimating how many of you look slightly sleepy right now. How many of you have yawned recently, which I can prompt by fake yawning because yawns are catching. And then everyone can yawn, and everyone can look more sleepy and disinterested in what I'm saying. And then my sociologist is saying they're really hating this right now. You are a terrible communicator. You should do something else with your life. Refuse collection looks interesting. You know, our sociometers are primed to read rejection. Why? Because they want to defend our belongingness value. The best way to defend you is to identify every risk to you. If your core desire is to belong, your core fear is to be rejected. And therefore, your sociometer is alive to rejection all the time. There was a lovely woman in a church I worked in once. She was a really key part of the congregation. And she came up to me and she, um, she, she during the peace, um, we have the Anglican peace in the Anglican church. That means we stand up and shake hands. I shook hands with everyone else. Um, a couple of weeks later, I was thinking, I haven't seen this lady uh, for, you know, for for a couple of weeks and she was really kind of central to the church and I knew everyone really well so I called her up and I said hey I haven't seen you for a while she said oh I've just been away from church for a bit and I said well I'd love you to come round and you know let's have a catch up and she came to my office and, and sat down and, and I said you know how's it going she said it's been a really difficult couple of weeks and I said oh why she said something, something, she said, something really bad happened to me in church I said in church oh my goodness that's my responsibility um, tell me what happened she said well it's during the peace and basically, I put out my hand you know, really warmly to shake someone's hand and greet them, and they just basically blanked me, and they shook the hand of the person next to me. I said, wow, that's terrible. Who did that to you? You did. <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry, I, I didn't even see you. Exactly. Oh, I'm really, I'm really sorry. Um, anyway. Long story short, she actually left the church, not specifically in response to that, but another shaming experience for her made, that she made her leave the church. And I found it very difficult to come back from that interaction. Now, what happened was her sociometer was so alive to rejection that my mistake led her to believe that she was of low value. We are dealing with people every day whose sociometers are so distorted by that fear of rejection that they see rejection even where rejection is not intended. And we see rejection where rejection isn't intended. Our sociometers are, are distorted by a poor attachment. They make us estimate people's hatred of us rather than their love of us. Now, I could have 20 people say, oh, I love that talk, or that was really engaging. One person say, oh, I was so bored by that, it nearly killed me. And I know I would, I would be awake for like three months just with that ringing around in my head. In our own way, shame is alive within us 
And we need to acknowledge how distorted our sociometers are if we're going to make a recovery. Leary writes, the psychological system that monitors the social environment for clues relevant to one's relational value, the sociometer, sees the degree to which other people regard their relationship with the individual to be valuable or important. We are assessing one another all the time with a view to whether or not they are actually our friends or our enemies. Belongingness reflects our urge to belong the sociometer evaluates the danger in front of us. It operates a non-conscious level, scanning the social environment for any indication that one's relational value is low or declining. And we live in a threatening world. We lead in a threatening world. Not threatening to our physical well-being, but threatening our belonging value. Now, I work here in South Kensington. And I just see it in droves. And the more aware of it I've been, the more I've seen it. That actually, this isn't just a problem of leadership. This is a problem of life. Like, we are all wanting belonging and community. And we are all terrified of community and belonging. If we can help people with mental health problems, it's going to be helping them to belong because they are specifically wired to believe that they should, would, or will be rejected because of the problems or challenges that they're facing. In a society that already stigmatizes people with mental health problems, they ha already have a belief that they will be rejected. Therefore, their sociometry is heightened by the challenges of their own conditions. And they're more likely to pull away from relationship with us, with others, or with the church because of the conditions that they carry for this very reason. You know, it's funny, Moses, he could put himself into exile by running to Midian. It's actually very difficult to put yourself into exile physically these days, like even on holiday. Like, oh, I see, like your location finder says you're in Greece right now. It's like, hold on, <laughs> why didn't I turn that off? Like, we know where everyone is. We track our children. Oh, is that just me? <laughs> you know, we, we know where everyone is. We know what everyone's up to. Everyone's busy posting because they want to keep their belongingness value alive to their social group so they know they can come back to friends rather than enemies. No one wants to be forgotten anymore. But what we do in, 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 in our exile rather than running to Midian is we, we create a false self that we live behind. We create a persona that's more palatable to Joe Public than the person that we actually are. This isn't a professional persona. When you see Dr. Rob or Dr. Chi-Chi in their office, they're clinicians and they should look like clinicians and sound like clinicians. You don't want Rob to go, oh, I had a really big curry of will last night. You, know, you want him to say, hello, you know, what's the problem? I'm Dr. Rob, have a sit down, let's have a chat. So there's a professional persona. There's nothing wrong with that. But what this is, is a false self that we propagate to live behind. It's not a professional persona, it's just our persona. We, we have a pride position, an upfront position, which we want to show everyone when we're secretly hiding in plain sight. Shame-bound leaders look present, appear transparent, and sound connected, but in reality they are not emotionally present, they're a closed book, and they feel highly disconnected. I want to know today, in your own experience, are you, are you presenting up front with your false self, hoping that other people will accept you? Do you think you can fake it long enough to get everyone's approval at the end of the day? Now, I believe God's called us to a very different way. 
He, he wants us to know that we, we truly belong. We no longer have to live like this, hiding uh, in the shadows. And this is important because you have all been given a mission by God. And I want to conclude today with this idea of your true mission. But before we get on to our true mission, let's just have a, a false mission. Here's a young Anakin Skywalker. He's um, casting a pretty serious shadow. Because you see, the thing is, when we've got a false self, we have a shadow mission that props up that identity. So Anakin, you know, he could have saved the Republic, but instead he joins the Empire. In our own experience, just like Moses, Moses, he could have been the person who led the sheep of Israel to freedom, but instead he becomes the person who just leads the Midian sheep. The Midian sheep enable him to keep his false self alive. It's only when he goes back to that place of danger and humiliation in front of Pharaoh that he can actually fulfill the mission that God's really called him to. We will all have a shadow mission that we use to prop up our false self. You know, my shadow mission might be to get approval. I could preach, you know, a great sermon from Romans 8 to this side, this side of the church. You know, you'd weep, you'd cry, you'd wail. Some of you'd become Christians for the third or fourth time. It'd be an amazing response. And I'd preach, and over here I'm preaching for my true mission, which is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. But I could preach exactly the same sermon to this group exactly the same content, exactly the same response, the same number of people become Christians for the fourth or fifth time. But actually, over here, I'm preaching that Will van der Hart is funny. I'm just filling my shadow mission. I'm just propping myself up to feed my vulnerability. I'm staying hidden. No one knows whether you're fulfilling your shadow mission or your true mission, apart from you. It's all about intentions. I want to say, you know, the happy camper, the happy individual is someone whose true mission and true self are co-joined. You, know, you could be a happy burglar if you didn't feel bad about really robbing people. I've never met a happy burglar. There's something within every happy burglar that is unhappy. They all feel like it's not really going in the right direction. If you want to be effective in leadership, if you want to be not exhausted by leadership, you want to make sure that your true self and your true mission are going in the same direction. That means that you are really showing up and you're really doing that thing that God's called you to do. And that might be costly. Really showing up, that's costly. Really being vulnerable, that's costly. Patrick had it there in spades. I've never seen Patrick happier or more powerful than I've seen him since he started Kintsugi Hope. Why? Because I believe that actually the raw, visceral, powerful person that he is is so on the front foot doing what he's really called to do that it's, it's going to have legs because here's someone who's truly vulnerable doing what God's truly called them to for this true season of their life. Now, there might not be one thing, but the whole deal is this. Are you reacting to shame, isolating yourself, hiding behind a false self, fulfilling, you know, feeding yourself the crumbs under the king's table to keep your, 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 your false self alive? Or are you thriving in leadership because you know who you are and you know whose you are? I, um, I want you to just know that there's empathy for you, that actually there's, there's empathy for you, there's compassion for you, D Jesus is offering that to us all, shame, Brené says shame cannot survive being spoken about, it can't survive empathy, that actually that love and communion and community, they do something powerful to shame, but they can only do it when we really show up, you know you can't empathise with someone who isn't actually who they are. You can't empathise with someone who's not really telling you how life is. You can only do it when it's heart to heart. You can only do it when it's person to person. But here's the antidote. There aren't any great steps. It's just 
actually, it takes courage to pick up the snake by the tail. It takes courage because when we pick up the snake by the tail, we risk being bitten. But in this room, some of us are going to have to let go of controlling the snake by the head. Some of us are going to have to stop running away from the snake. Some of us are going to have to follow God's instruction to pick up the snake by the tail and risk humiliation and rejection for the sake of really leading. Now, I've needed to do this in my own leadership. I've needed to pick up the snake by the tail and go, this isn't going to make me popular. This isn't going to make me like a happy camper in the public eye, but this is just who I am. And, and if people like it, that's all good. If they don't like it, that's all fine. But this is what I've got to do. I've got to show up. I've got to be real. And this journey takes us from either hiding to leading. You know, controlling the head of the snake, that's just hiding. That's just polishing the toilets when your whole church is flooded. But picking up the snake by the tail, that's really leading. You see, God took Moses' staff to a snake in order that he might address his shame. And then his restoration leads the snake to a staff, and that's his leadership. Moses goes on with that staff time and time again to demonstrate the power that was his in Christ. The power of God manifest in his ministry. That same snake staff is the staff that separated the waters that freed the people from slavery. It's the same staff that was thrown into the bitter water to make it sweet. It was the same staff that crushed the rock in order that water might flow from it. It was the staff of leadership. Now, there are a lot of leaders out there who are hiding. But I don't believe God's called us to hide. I, I think it's called us to lead. That leadership begins with you, and that's hearing that you belong. You primarily belong to God. That's the first track of your leadership. You belong to God, but you don't just belong to God. You belong to God, and you belong to community. There are two trails to go down. You belong to God. That's a prior I value. Every one of you, if you've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, are a son or a daughter of the Most High God. You belong to to God. Your belongingness value, your innate need to belong is satisfied by God and his presence. But you also belong in community and that means showing up to God and showing up to others. For some of us today it might be showing up in our marriage, it might be showing up to our children, it might be showing up to our colleagues, it might be showing up to our friends, it might be stopping saying oh 20 years ago when I was depressed, you know that's when I learned about mental health and instead saying you know what Yesterday, when I was feeling pretty depressed, I was thinking about this. Now, it's actually showing up, saying, you know what? We don't need shame to bind us anymore. When, um, when we meet the shame snake again in Numbers 21.9, the snakes are biting the, the, the Israelites on their escape. It's really interesting because it's, you know, it's a parallel to Moses shepherding the Midianite sheep and then being bitten by the snake. Now it's the Israelite sheep who are being bitten by the snakes. So snakes in Midian, now snakes in the Exodus. And it says there in Numbers 21.9, so Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole, and then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. There was this sense that actually, there was nothing magic about the snake on the pole. It was that it, was that it symbolized turning your eyes from your own power to God's power. It was about taking your eyes off the ground and turning your eyes to the sky, reminding people that they were in relationship with God. And then, amazingly, in John 3:14, it says, As Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. You see, the antidote to supernatural shame in Scripture is Jesus. The snake is at the beginning of the Bible. He's the snake of shame who sows mistrust into the promises of God. 
Shame is there at the middle of the Bible. Moses has to grasp it by the tail in order that he might lead the people to freedom. And shame is there at the end of the Bible when Jesus goes to the cross and becomes the snake on the pole in order that we might be set free from sin and shame. You see, the Christian gospel is not just a gospel that deals with guilt. It's a gospel that deals with your belonging. It's the gospel that restores you from exile from the garden to welcome into heaven. It's the home at the start and it's the home at the end. Bible teacher Derek Prince summarizes the 10 exchanges that resulted when Jesus died on the cross. He says, Jesus was punished for the sins that we've committed that we might be forgiven. Jesus was wounded for the sins that we've committed that we might be healed. Jesus was made sin with our sinfulness that we may, might be made right with his righteousness. Jesus died our death that we might share his life. Jesus was made a curse that we might receive the blessing. Jesus endured our spiritual poverty that we might serve his abundance. Jesus bore our shame that we might share his glory. Jesus endured our rejection that we might have his acceptance with the Father. Jesus was cut off by death that we might be joined with God in life. Our old man or woman, before we accepted Jesus, was put to death in him that new life might come alive in us. Jesus became our shame in order that we might become his righteousness. That's the value. That's the transaction. That's why the belonging the story is so important to all of us in leadership, is that Jesus actually became the snake on the pole so that we might be freed from shame, that we might be stored both in our hearts and in our leadership. And my encouragement for you all today is, is this call to return, not to kind of eat in poverty. When um, I got married, and I'm going to close with this, before we have our Q&A time. Just before I got married, I was walking on the street with my wife. She, um, I had a mobile phone, she didn't. My mobile phone rang and someone said, um, I'd like to speak to Lucinda, please. And I was a bit taken aback because I was really like, oh, this is my phone. And, um, and so I passed her my phone and she started jumping around on the street, screeching in delight. And I said, um, I said what, what, what is it? What is it, impatiently? She said, we've won a holiday. I said, oh, don't get too excited. It's probably a timeshare. <laughs> now, we have family experience of timeshares. And, um, and, and once I thought we'd won a holiday, and actually it was a timeshare, my dad went along to the presentation. And he's, very, he's a bit of a whiz with finances, and he basically worked out that it was a complete scam. I think he tried to evangelize everyone else into it being a complete scam and then had a bit of a set to with the bouncers. So <laughs> I was all about it being a scam. But it transpired, actually, it was true. We had won a holiday. Actually, we'd won a luxury holiday of a lifetime to the Maldives, which is some small islands in the Indian Ocean. And my wife had entered the Brides Magazine competition to win the luxury holiday of a lifetime, a honeymoon, in fact, to something called the Taj Exotica Resort and Spa, which is more expensive for one night than my normal family holidays for five people for a normal two-week period in the summer. Anyway, we read the small print, and actually it said that whilst we'd won this particular holiday, that it was, it was bed and breakfast only. And so I dutifully called the island in advance to ask if they had any shops. And I, I remember phoning, I was a student, at, we were both students at the time, so I phoned up the island and I said, you know, hello, hello there, I'm coming to stay on your island. I just wondered if you had any shops. And the chap said, uh, yes, we have got some shops on the island, sir. And I said, oh, brilliant. He said, yeah, we've got a luxury goods shop. And uh, I said, anything else? He said, no, well, we've actually got two luxury goods shops. And I was like, well, what do you sell there? He said, well, we sell luxury goods. <laughs> so I was a bit like, um, I was like, okay, um, so no supermarkets then, anything like that, no. No, sir, but we've got five restaurants on the island, and um, you're very welcome to dine there. 
And I asked him, you know, what's the cheapest thing on the menu? And he told me it was about $80 a head, which as a student sounded like an awful lot of money. And we were quite ingenious. So what we did was, I was thinking, how, how much luggage do you need to go to the Indian Ocean? <laughs> so what we did was we, we filled one suitcase with pot noodles and Nutri-Grain bars. <laughs> and the other one we packed full of our um, swimming trunks and towns. And then we just wandered off to the airport feeling rather smug. And um, we arrived there at the Maldives, and uh, we were taken to this Banda hut, which is like a kind of glass hut with a thatched roof on stilts over the sea. It was absolutely incredible. It was like, bigger than our flat. And, um, and obviously, we were having a very, very happy time. And, and, and obviously, the first night, so we watched the sun go down, and I was eating the spicy beef pot noodle, and Lou was eating <laughs> the chow mein pot noodle. It was really tasty. And then the next morning, I went to the restaurant, and, um, and I was really set for this. So we went to the restaurant, like, I think it's bed and breakfast only. So I began, you know, with the English breakfast, full English, and then continental, and then Japanese, then Thai, Malay. Started drinking these things called lassies, which have about a million calories in them. And I was going along the line, bratwurst from Germany. I was hitting the sushi, even from Japan, super early. You know, I did the buffet, and I'm seriously, I did the buffet. And these guys are looking at me like, flip, what's he eat for dinner? Like, where's he even put it? And then, of course, lunchtime, I'm having a neutral grain bra. In the evening, we're having another pot noodle, watching the sun go down in our, like, $1,000 a night little banda hut. And we did this all week. And every morning, I could see these waiters, like, here he comes. They're, like, nudging each other. Here he comes. Like, they were doing, like, wager. Like, what's he going to have today? What's he going to have? Flip, look, see how much he had. What's he eat for dinner? Well, actually, I was having the, um, you know, I was having the beef again. Uh, the beef pot noodle with my like, hotel kettle. And I was all feeling super smug about this. But we, we, we had gone water skiing, which was a bit of a rare treat. And so I went to the, um, I went to the concierge, because you know, mature people check the bill. I, that's something my dad taught me. Some, you know, mature people check the bill. So I went to the concierge on the last night. I said, hello, uh, I've had a lovely week. I'd like to check the bill, please. And uh, so the concierge print out a piece of paper, fold it, and put it in a gold envelope. I'm thinking, why did you do that? I'm right in front of you. <laughs> they pushed it, pushed it across the table to me, and then I sat down on the leather chairs, and I opened it up. And, you know, we'd bought a couple of drinks in the bar and, and you know, a couple of snacks. So I opened it up, and, and, and the water skiing was there, fine. And I said, you know, what, what about the, the drinks and the snacks from the bar? He said, what do you mean, sir? I said, you know, the drinks and the snacks from the bar. He said, so... You, you're on full board, sir. <laughs> he said, you know, you're, you're, you're actually on full board plus, so you can have room service, sir, and you can eat at any of our five luxury restaurants. And, sir, have you tried the lobster thermidor in our seafood restaurant? I highly recommend it. And so you can actually, there is actually one restaurant here where there's sharks that swim underneath the restaurant at night time. I've wondered if you've tried that. Anyway, the colour ran from my face, and I went to see uh, my wife, and obviously I looked like I'd seen a ghost, I was completely ashen, and she said, how much was it? I was like, no, it was nothing. She said, what do you mean? I said, love, they got it wrong. We're, we're full board plus. We could have had anything, anything, at any time, and we were eating pot noodles. Anything, any meal. And now we've got to go home with an empty suitcase, having eaten 16 pot noodles between us. <laughs> and you know what? 
the thing is, so many of us are living that life with God. You know, we are eating pot noodles when we've been invited to dine with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know, shame wants to say, you don't deserve a place at the table. Shame says, you don't belong here. You've got to sit in your room and you can eat some food for other people. When God's saying to you, you know what? You belong here. You've been called to dine. You've been called to show up. You've been called to the community of the dining hall, not the isolation of your room. Come and eat with me. Come and know you belong with me. You know, I want you all to leave this place today knowing how to lead well. I'm not sure we've done it. I'm not sure we could have done it. But I think the best way you could lead well is by being the leader that you are, being the person that God's created you to be, actually showing up with all of your scars and saying, you know what, I know God can use me. So why don't we pray as we conclude. Jesus, thank you so much that you first loved us, that you became our shame in order that we might become your righteousness. Thank you that when God sees us, he doesn't see our guilt, he doesn't see our shame or our sin, he sees the righteousness of his son. We wanna just give you thanks and praise today that you are with us and that we want you to transform our leadership from competence focus to character focus. We wanna pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would empower us and enable us to really show up today, tomorrow, the day after, to, to be real, to share and receive empathy and compassion. And we pray you make it real through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.